0: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, your host for today's episode of New Books in American Studies. Today I'll be joined by Andrew Needham, Associate Professor of History at New York University. We'll be speaking about his not entirely new but still very exceptional book called Power Lines, Phoenix and the Making of the Modern Southwest. It was published by Princeton University Press in hardcover in 2014 and in paperback in 2016. Power lines tells a complicated but important story about the politics of energy systems. Needham looks at the making of the Southwest in the 20th century, focusing especially on the vast and complex infrastructure that linked urban spaces to the hinterlands. He shows that the rapid development of Phoenix and other Southwest cities depended on massive quantities of cheap energy, and that energy, primarily coal, came from and polluted Navajo lands. Stories about infrastructure are sometimes hard to read. Needham, however, skillfully tells a dramatic story that should help us rethink spatial relationships, the inequalities of our energy systems, and modernity. The book brings together many different fields and would therefore be of interest to a broad audience, including environmental historians, political historians, Native American historians, and urban historians. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Andrew Needham about his fascinating new book called Power Lines. Thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me, Andrew. My pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book, uh, as I've already told you uh, when we were offline, uh, and I've been really looking forward to talking to you about it. As you probably know, on this show, we'd like to begin with a pretty broad question about how you became a scholar. How did you become a historian? Um so
1: I uh, really became an environmental historian in the years in between kind of finishing my undergraduate degree and um and uh, starting graduate school so I moved to San Francisco after I finished my undergraduate degree with not a real clear idea of what I wanted to uh what I wanted to do and I ended up working at a place called um uh, the whole earth Catalog, uh, which is most famous for producing <laughs> in 1970 the whole earth or 69 the Whole Earth Catalog, this kind of journal of tools and tools and ideas. Uh, and in uh, uh, when I was there in the mid 90s, they were producing what they called the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog, which was an update uh, of the catalog for the year. You, you know, meant for the year 2000. They're doing it kind of in the in the mid 90s. Um, and so in uh one of the jobs I had there was um was assigning book reviews, and we would get an eclectic mix of you know of books that kind of straddle the line between kind of scholarship and journalism and um the book that came in that was most influential on me was uh, Rebecca Solnit's book Savage Wars, which kind of tells the story of kind of the remaking of landscapes across the American West, uh, focusing on Yosemite in the 19th century and the atomic test sites in Nevada in the, um, in the mid-20th century. And kind of reading it, this was a kind of history. I was a history um, major as an undergrad, but this was a kind of history that I had never really um, even considered the way that human action and human interest transformed landscape. Um, in you know in really powerful and unequal ways because one of the subtexts of that book is the way that indigenous people uh, and their land claims are really subordinated to the interests of dominant societies for wilderness for nuclear testing for for other things Um, and so you know going from you know when I started graduate school, kind of those, that set of interests was really kind of embedded in me as, you know, as one of the the real core questions I wanted to ask. And I think, you know, a lot of it was, you know, experiencing the American West in my, you know, in, in my mid-20s um, and, you know, and seeing it as a, you know as a very different landscape which is a very kind of stereotypical kind of you know uh you know western western story the naive the naive uh the naive person from the midwest goes to the west and is shocked by you know by the difference that he you know he it's usually a he <laughs> uh confronts um but you know it you know despite the despite the kind of you know, the stereotypical nature of that uh story, it you know, it really was uh kind of deeply influential in the kind of historical questions that I um that I found myself asking kind of throughout my career. Like how did this, you know, how did this place come to be used and developed in this way? How has it changed environments and who has benefited and who is uh um, and who has not benefited uh, from from those changes?
0: Um, great. So, how did you come to this specific project? Uh, this project about the Southwest and Phoenix, Arizona, in particular.
1: There's really kind of two stories uh, there. One is one is a um, you know story of you know driving past Four Corners Power Plant um and kind of seeing its plume for kind of miles and miles and miles uh when i was uh you know when i was on my way to to go to the san juan mountains and seeing that plume and being kind of shocked and appalled that you know what is this you know what is this what is this thing doing here right it did not seem to kind of match my ideas of the kind of Um, the kind of economic life uh, or the kind of industry that belong kind of so far from, uh, from urban spaces. Uh, And so that kind of, you know, that happened in this period that I was talking about earlier. Um, And so this was before I began graduate school, but that idea of like, what is this doing here uh, stayed, um, stayed with me, you know, just as a kind of, Useful, productive question. And then, in when I was in my first year of graduate school at the University of Michigan, uh, I had to do a first year seminar paper, uh, and the graduate library there happened to have. I mean, I was interested in these questions that I kind of talked about before: landscape change and um, um, environment uh, in the American West, and. Um, so that had brought me to look at kind of tourism as one of the primary ways that kind of landscape, you know, change became an economic kind of, you know, that that unique landscapes became a kind of an economic driver. The University of Michigan happened to have a 80 year run of a magazine called Arizona Highways, which has this <laughs> you
0: know,
1: very, you know, and, and this is a very, you know, it's, this is, you know in the way that in a first year seminar paper, you're kind of grasping for whatever sources uh, you can find. Uh, and so because there was this big run of the magazine, that was a monthly magazine, I just, I sat down and literally I didn't read every article, but I, I did, I did, you know, enter every article into a database and kind of read through 80 years of this magazine and saw it go through this transition from uh, in the, the, Late teens, early 20s, uh, you know, really promoting the idea of building roads in Arizona. We need roads in order that this state can become modern. Um, to a shift in the mid-30s toward promoting the kind of unique qualities of, uh, of the state, most prominent among them, the state's native peoples, which, you know, in the early part of the magazine are completely sidelined uh but then starting in the thirties come to feature this very prominent uh role as a you know as a counterpoint to modernity and what makes Ari- what makes Arizona unique and special. Uh so come to come to Arizona the as the phrasing in the magazine almost uh always went, you know, come to Arizona, drive north, uh and see people living as they lived, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 years ago, driving into Northern Arizona is a way to drive into the past. And so kind of that, you know, thinking about, oh, how does this power plant that is kind of sitting in the back of my mind fit into these stories of kind of temporal dislocation uh, became the kind of germ of... Uh, you know, of the book uh, itself. And then, you know, I went and, you know, began investigating the history of that power plant and literally followed its power lines back to to Phoenix, which was the main um, uh, source of consumption for the electricity generated there. Uh, and so that really began to lead me to see connections between uh, kind of the native landscape of, uh, of northern Arizona, western New Mexico, uh, and these, and this, you know, exploding city uh, that grows from, you know, across the second half of the 20th century grows from about 100,000 people um, to uh, a couple million people.
0: Wonderful. I, I feel like there could be a third story as well. Um, uh, so at the University of Michigan, your advisor was uh, Matthew Lasseter, correct?
1: Actually, my, my actually my advisor was Maria Montoya.
0: Really? Oh, okay. The, uh, that's really interesting. Um, but I mean, there's a, a really big suburban um, uh, element to, to your story. And uh, I've recently uh, been going through Lily Geismer's Um, book and then as well Connolly's book. And uh, there just seems to be like a generation of scholars uh, coming out of the University of Michigan who are doing just really cool suburban histories.
1: Yeah, no, that was, you know, that was one of these wonderful idiosyncratic moments, Mm -hmm. right, of that I happened to be at Michigan at, you know, as a moment, at a moment when, you know, kind of because of Matt Lasseter, because of Jesse Hoffman Garskoff, um, uh, because of uh, some other people, um, a bunch of graduate students really began to work around these questions of what are the, you know, what are the boundaries of the of the city in post war America? What is what are the effects of suburbanization, metropolitanization? Um, and you know, Matt ran a couple of different seminars where he brought lot he brought kind of numerous uh, people in uh, to kind of, you know, to kind of run through projects, you know, at various stages in their, uh, in their development, either after their book is out or, you know, as they're working, as they're working on it. Um, so that gave me, you know, an opportunity to really not only read deeply in that literature, but to be in a group of, you know, people like, you know, like Lily, like Nathan, like Andrew Highsmith, um, uh clay howard who are all kind of working kind of you know in different ways kind of around you know around these these issues um and i always saw my project as um you know from the time i was writing uh updates to well here's what i you know here's what i accomplished this year uh of bringing together uh the ideas in bill kernan's natures metropolis uh um, about the kind of the broad reach of urban uh, economic life, and um, Tom Sagrue's Origins of the Urban Crisis, saying kind of here's the here's the way that kind of urban transformation produces inequality. Um, and so, you know, one of the one of the things that you know I was able to do thinking with these people was to think about well, what's a what does the map of inequality look like if we broaden the borders of metropolitan life to include uh, its resource demands. Um, And, um, and, you know, I think that so bringing those questions of growth and inequality together with questions of um, basically how does a city, how does, how does a modern city sustain itself? Um, You know, led me to kind of these new, uh, you know, to a, I think, a new map of inequality in post-war America, or at least in the Southwest.
0: Great. You've anticipated my first question about the inside of your book. Um, So uh, we'll we'll finally enter it now. Uh, So your book charts the uh, 20th century history of the Southwest and shows how energy systems involving dams, coal, electrical power lines... Um, uh, connected this region in deeply unequal ways. Um, so, you know, for instance, the cheap energy from uh, the Navajo lands fueled the rapid post-war development of metropolitan spaces like Phoenix. And so as as you've been uh, alluding to so far, um, geography plays a huge role in framing and, and advancing your argument. Um, so uh, you, you're right, and I think you actually just quoted it <laughs> in your last answer, uh, that your book, constructs a broad new map of post-war urban, environmental, and political change. Uh, and so this regional approach um, that links both um, urban and suburban spaces with uh, the hinterlands sort of challenges some of the, the recent historiography on suburbs in the cities. Um, and so those works seem to cut off the, the suburbs from anything beyond it, and that almost uh, like reifies these older assumptions about how it was the city and like the the, the metropole that was the engine of growth, um, and it therefore conceals uh, some of the, the the very real contributions um, to development um, from the you know the country um, so could you just elaborate on this regional approach and uh, maybe tell our listeners what is gained by using this much broader geographic framework
1: sure, sure. Um, I, mean, I think that you know it's it, funnily one of the places it comes from is really you know if if you think of you know what are if you think geography you think maps, right? And one of the places that the that the geography that I write about in this book comes from is really kind of archival discoveries of maps of power lines um, that you know progressively show kind of how. Deeply interconnected, the Southwest's growing urban cities uh, and its hinterlands become, you know, from really the, you know, from really the the starting in the in the fifties, but really it's starting to really take off in the in the sixties and seventies. So uh, the maps that I found initially showed kind of direct connections between power plants on, um, you know. But initially, direct connections between local power plants and local consumers, so power plants located you know in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Um, then um, starting around 1961, new connections between Phoenix uh, and Four Corners power plant located uh, uh, near the four corners, uh, about you know 40 miles south of the actual. Four Corners. Um, But then in um, doing research in the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, I found a report in 1970 uh, from the Department of Energy that has this amazing schematic power map that shows um, a series of power plants, uh, four power plants that really ring the Navajo Nation um, uh, and cities throughout the Southwest. So, you know, with that Map with the interconnection of multiple power plants and multiple cities, um, and this is not also It's not only Phoenix, but also Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Albuquerque, Salt Lake City. You know, there's on the corner of the map it says to Denver. Um, so you, there's this picture of this, you know, increasingly dense connection between the energy supplies of uh, coal located um, uh, on native land uh, and urban and suburban consumers located hundreds of miles away. And I think, you know, the merits of this approach, you know, really allow um, us to understand, as, as you suggested, the ways that um, the cities and city and suburban borders, as we normally consider them, um, in a way, hide the broad effects, uh, the broad Transformative effects that contemporary uh, urban and suburban life have had on kind of landscapes far away. And I mean, this is a, you know, I think this is a history that if you were to take it to a national scale, you could include uh, things, you know, stories like the creation of water supplies, uh, New York's water supplies in uh, first Westchester County and then the Catskills. it could be used uh, uh, to think about urban waste disposal and where kind of urban waste goes. So these kind of cascading effects that are both kind of environmental and political that, um, that urban resource demands uh, really, really have take stories of inequality away from what Robert Shelf called this classic story, right? Of the of black inner city surrounded by a white suburban noose um, um, and, you know, remap inequality to, um, to kind of show another kind of layer beyond, uh, beyond suburbs um, uh, that are kind of, you know, where kind of unequal relations that are both political and ecological um, uh, become put in place.
0: One thing that your book does really well is uh, provide like a coherent narrative for infrastructure, um, which is uh, a subject that is like a really hard thing to do, uh, you know, because of its vastness, its complexity, um, and uh, when it's functioning, um, its invisibility. Um, so uh, these are problems that I face in my own uh, research and writing, and so I was wondering if you could just say something about the task of infrastructure history um, and uh, how exactly you tackle it.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, I think that you're right that infrastructure is is invisible in its experience, but one of the actual great things about studying infrastructure as a historian is that there is clear physical evidence of its you know of its presence in many in many ways i mean the one of the things i do early on in the book is kind of basically kind of n- narrate a power lines uh reach from phoenix up to uh up to four corners power plant and the way i was actually able to do that was uh using google earth um, and zoomed in to zoomed in fairly you know fairly close was able to actually follow you know one of these extra high voltage power lines as it makes its way across um, arizona's arizona's landscape so while you know the the consumption of electricity becomes i mean in many ways uh, uh, second nature in uh, uh, in Phoenix, in the wonderful dual meaning that Bill Cronin's use of second nature uh, has, um, the actual physical presence of of infrastructure allows, um, you know, and the understanding that this infrastructure is built at a particular moment for a particular uh, uh, set of interests um, allows historians to, you know, to really. Bring kind of time and space together um, in you know in a profound way to kind of escape that old kind of you know accusation that historians write as if history took place on the head of a pin um, while also kind of getting away from the you know the geographer's you know you know sense of kind of timelessness um, uh, so you know I think that infrastructure in its you know in its both its invisibility and its visibility is this kind of wonderful tool uh to think about how have um how has political power worked um and you know this is my book obviously has kind of you know power has dual meanings right power is uh electricity and what it enables people to do in um in kind of modern lives, but it also is, you know, power in the ability of, uh, people in certain places to claim, uh, use of resources from another place, uh, for their own, for their own ends.
0: Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, so Uh, That's actually really interesting that you use Google Earth to look at the power lines because, you know, like that's obviously like, you know, our infrastructure today. Um, That's like, you know, enabling you to monitor the infrastructure um, that was built in the past. Um, So that's really neat. And so uh, just another question to kind of set us up. Your book explores the history of a place that does not have the same familiarity as a place like say, New York, uh, or Chicago. And so, uh, could you just like set the scene for us? What was, um, Phoenix, Arizona or Arizona more broadly like in like the 1920s and thirties? Um, and maybe, um, you could introduce us to, uh, some of the characters that, um, are important to your narrative.
1: Sure. Sure. And I think it's, you know, I think there's, um, you know, there's two places. I mean, there's two prominent places in this book that are unfamiliar. Uh, Um, to people, or maybe whose familiarity is, uh, you know, exists as, uh, as archetype rather than rather than reality, which is probably true of most places, but it's both Phoenix uh, and the Navajo Nation. Um, And so, you know, Phoenix in the um, Phoenix in the at the beginning of the book is really a, you know, small agricultural city. Um, And it's strange to think of Phoenix as an agricultural city because we think of, you know, that this, you know, city as a prominent kind of desert, uh, desert city. But the story of, you know, Phoenix really in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century is the success of of hydraulic reclamation in transforming um, desert lands, which have over, you know, tens of thousands of years received, you know, seasonal flooding, which has displaced a lot of uh, really rich soil, uh, you know, into this giant basin of the Salt River Valley Um, and applying water to that uh, really, you know, did um, allow as kind of irrigation evangelists in the early 20th century said, you know, made the desert bloom. Um and Phoenix becomes uh one of the nation's largest suppliers of of citrus, of vegetables, of cotton, um, you know, in uh in the first half of the 20th century. Um uh and Phoenix exists at the center of this larger agricultural landscape as a kind of um you know marketing center. Um and you know services, you know services center. There's all virtually no. Um, there's virtually no manufacturing in in Phoenix. The largest manufacturer uh, is both the the two industries are agricultural canning, which makes sense, and brew manufacturer. Mm. Um, and that like brew manufacturer is your big industry shows. I think the kind of the the way that you know this is not you know the you know by no means an industrial city. Um, at the same time, the Navajo Nation, um, uh, at this moment in time, um, not, the Navajo people really, I think, are, you know, in the late 19th century, one of the great kind of post-conquest success stories. I mean, it, that they're, you know, that they can be considered a success or I think, suggests the devastation mm-hmm. of, of, you know, American colonialism. Um, But, you know, the Navajo people see a kind of increase in population following the um, following their return from forced exile in uh, in New Mexico. It's actually the um, the 150th anniversary this year of the signing of uh, the signing of the treaty between the Navajo people and the U.S. government. Um, So in 19 in 1868. A very small number of, of Navajo people, seven thousand, return from their forced exile uh, at the Bosque Redondo, and over the the next um, fifty to sixty years, see a kind of resurgence of both um, human population and animal population uh, as um, they you know really repopulate the the um, uh, the Colorado Plateau, which sits in kind of northern area. Northern Arizona, um, that uh, you know, they dramatically kind of increase the territory of their reservation by ignoring government, you know, ignoring boundaries that are, you know, kind of abstract and set in place for no real reason, um, and you know, come to claim much of much of uh, the northern part of uh, of the state and the western part of New Mexico. Um, Uh, beginning in the kind of teens, 20s, and 30s, extended uh, drought, and then a program of the uh, U.S. government to forcibly um, reduce Navajo stock herds devastates the Navajo economy. Uh, So, you know, at the time my book really starts, um, the kind of Navajo people have seen both ecological disaster and a kind of almost a reconquest a uh, a re you know a reimposition of American colonial power over them in kind of you know removing their sub their subsistence base um so you know it's a real moment of kind of profound kind of both economic shock and um kind of spiritual cultural trauma uh for people who have seen um uh, stock herds that they rely on for their lives, you know, killed in many cases killed in front of them by uh by uh agents of the US government.
0: Okay, so uh we're gonna move on to uh the 1940s and um sort of like the post-World War II moment. Um so um, like Phoenix itself, uh, its population grew, as you say, from 65,000 to 444, 440,000 um, between 1940 and 1960. Um, and so it's undergoing tremendous change. Uh, they begin to market, like the Chamber of Commerce begins to market it as the the Valley of the Sun, where you know residents could enjoy outdoor living. But aside from just being an ideal, this was also a political project launched by Phoenician elites. Um can you briefly just say something about this political project um and then um especially the significance of electricity to that project
1: sure that's it um, um the i mean the people involved in this project um um so phoenix grows like many cities in the west beginning with world war II. they um become a it becomes a prominent place for uh Training aviators, uh, where you can grow cotton, you can grow pilots, is one of the uh, one of the phrases people uh, use. And um, also, it becomes a site because of the environmental conditions there, low humidity, um, um, in particular, becomes a place to manufacture uh, aeronautical components, aviation components. Um, And you know, its proximity to Los Angeles allows a lot of you know, kind of subcontractors to locate in Phoenix and then, you know, ship um parts to LA Well, the will there will where they will be assembled into uh into military and then civilian uh aircraft. Um that growth begins to um um as it continues after world war two um frightens people uh In Phoenix, a kind of new generation of of uh, elites that have kind of replaced uh, what what I describe as a downtown elite that includes um, and most prominently Barry Goldwater, uh, who is who uh, owns with his brother a local department store chain, um, but also a set of bankers, lawyers um, who kind of together see a very different um, future. For Phoenix, then it's agricultural. Uh, it's agricultural past. Um, what and and they, I think, you know, I'm not sure how. Um, um, I think they consciously also see an opportunity of posing Phoenix as an alternative to. Um, they they certainly see it consciously as an alternative to kind of eastern industrial cities, um, but also as a space of kind of relief from the New Deal state. Um, in many ways, I think the fact that American industry in the early part of the 20th century grows in, in states means that those, like New York, Illinois, Michigan, means that those states develop um, kind of large scale um, kind of social service networks, both at the state and uh, both at the state level, uh, as well as the federal level, um, Arizona, other states in the South don't develop that, and these boosters really see um, an opportunity uh, to um, present to capital um, a kind of relief from um, from you know labor from uh, from you know state uh you know from state regulation from you know from tax burdens, and they very aggressively both work at the state level to um, uh, remove uh, as many labor rights uh, and rights for union organizing as they can um, and you know work to um, create state policies that favor uh, that favor labor um, and both state and local, including kind of tax abatements, uh, long-term leases offered to particular companies to incentivize them to relocate uh, to Phoenix. So I think in many ways, a lot of the economic program of what we think of as the contemporary New Right um, really begins in places like uh, like Phoenix that seek to attract um, that seek to attract capital to them, uh, using these uh, strategies that kind of work in opposition to the New Deal state uh, in, you know, beginning really in, I think, the late 1940s, and moving forward, really aggressively into the, you know, into the 50s and 60s, and seeing a lot of uh, a lot of success uh, in those years where that, you know, I think that the amount of income from manufacturing in Phoenix moves from Kind of about five thousand, uh, in five thousand. Sorry, five million dollars annually um, in 1950 to 300 million
0: wow. annually
1: by 1960. So a really dramatic increase.
0: Yeah, we won't have time to go into it too much, but your book also shows just how indebted Phoenix was to the New Deal state, uh, especially in relation to the primary and secondary mortgage markets, which just. Basically enabled the development of Phoenix, uh, and it was actually the the first time that I finally understood uh, why, like basically, what what were the primary and secondary mortgage market and why they really mattered to suburbanization. But I will leave that to our listeners to look into your book to, to read. <laughs> and that,
1: I mean, that was really one of the fun stories. That was one of the like not fun stories, but that was really I think one of the the things that I also began to understand in the in the process of doing the research for the book and how tightly connected the, you know, these things we think of as abstract mm-hmm. the secondary mortgage market were to particular people, uh, in, um, you know, in this downtown in this new kind of community of downtown elites in Phoenix that they're really, that they are really kind of working, um, very intimately to help create, uh, and profit off of a, off of, Ah, uh, both of these mortgage markets.
0: Yeah, can you just say a little bit about electricity in uh, the, like the immediate post-war period, uh, and uh, sort of like as a as a function of um, you know attracting all these high tech businesses and industries, um, and also like just the the massive um, population boom. Um, electricity demand uh, was increasing, and then there were actually changes to the electrical network and the electrical utilities um, in Arizona.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that's a really, that. that's obviously a key kind of story that I, that I tell. And I think, you know, in, in the broadest picture, you know, I think historians have not understood enough how kind of central energy is, and, and the availability of uh, cheap, ready energy is for creating kind of not only modern economic life, but the kind of the assumption of growth, that the assumption that energy will be available, um, and will be kind of inexpensive has been one of the major, um, you know, major assumptions, uh, of a kind of growth economy as we've known it over the past, you know, over the past decade, over the past century, really. Um, so the, you know, when, People think of the Southwest. They usually think about Hoover Dam um, and the various dams built on the Colorado River. Um, and you know, indeed, those are you know built you know in part to uh, supply electricity to um, to the Southwest. Uh, but very very quickly after their construction, as early as 1952, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that builds dams, realizes that no matter how much hydropower they're able to, to build and they're not able to build as much as they want, um, that demand for electricity will quickly outstrip, um, uh, the supply that's available. Um, so they, um, propose, uh, and Phoenix utilities propose kind of simultaneous, simultaneously, though not in concert, um, that, um, that coal will need to be the new primary source of electric generation, uh, you know, for not only Phoenix but for the West, uh, um, the West at large. Um, in you know, in 1950, coal produces a minuscule amount of electricity uh, in the West, um, something on the range of five percent. Uh, but as early as 1952, the Bureau of Reclamation is saying that. Um, you know, by the year 1970, it will produce 40% uh, of the electric power. It actually ends up producing, um, you know, by 1980, around 65% of the region's power. So there's not only a story of kind of electrical generation, but where does, you know, what will the, what will the source of electricity, uh, what will the source of electricity be? Um, And the choice of coal um, uh, really, directs both federal authorities and private utilities toward coal supplies located on native lands, uh, starting in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, and that that, uh, brings us to one of my favorite chapters, um, chapter four, uh, called Modernizing the Navajo. And so here, um, you show uh, some of the story that you were just sharing with us about how coal on the Navajo reservation um, appeared to be a solution uh, to the inadequate supply of energy in metropolitan spaces in the Southwest, but then also um, to the economic problems that the Navajo were facing. Um, So, you know, you have uh, Phoenician business elites and then also, you know, um, different levels of government uh, uh, involving themselves. And all of them had different ideas about how the energy system should be built. And then the Navajo tribal leaders had their own vision for how or what that network should look like. Um, Can you just tell us about the the different conflicting visions for the use of energy resources uh, and how it eventually shaped the electrical network?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a great that's a great question, and one of the one of the things that actually really surprised me as I as I uh, did the research uh, around the book. I mean that the you know I, I'm Barry Goldwater says uh, writes a letter to uh, Arizona's governor Howard Pyle uh, just after he's elected to the Senate uh, and says something to the effect of you know in mineral resources alone we have enough supply to solve all of our so called Indian problems um you know with and you know in part this is a story of you know these uh, kind of phoenix elites saying that we need to kind of take back control of the resources of our state you know you know from kind of federal authority um, and in doing so we can create benefit not only for phoenix we can not only produce you know the the energy um, that our growth demands. Um, but we can also benefit the native people, uh, of the, uh, of the state. Um, you know, in part they see, you know, what this will require is, uh, is, you know, removing, um, uh, eliminating the federal trust responsibility for native people. So basically, um, saying that kind of the federal government will no longer, uh, have oversight such that Indian resources can then be brought into, uh, the market at a much more rapid pace. This is a story that I think continues to be a, um, a key element of the rights understanding of, of, of kind of native underdevelopment that, that kind of federal authority prevents the market from working its magic and, you know, rapidly modernizing these, uh, these, uh, these economies, um, for, uh, native, for Navajo leaders, they're somewhat sympathetic <laughs> to, to this view. I mean, they have a long history of dealing in very contentious ways with, uh, with the federal government and the federal government, you know, um, uh, underserving them systematically um so the idea of having you know um energy development on their land as a first step toward um what they imagine as uh industrial modernization seems appealing to tribal leaders as well um so um you know in a sense these two groups find um you know find um shared interests in their opposition to federal power uh coming from very different understandings of you know and and very different realities of their uh you know of the extent to which federal power uh uh, hampers them Um, but they kind of find a you know shared agreement that oh for kind of navajo leaders building power plants will be the first step toward a process of a process leading toward industrial modernity. I mean, this is the heyday of modernization theory, um, and the kind of ideas of what you know the you know what steps a people has to take in order to uh, to achieve something called modernity. Um, you know, are you know uh, you know you know are assumed to be a kind of linear kind of linear stage of development process um this of course quickly uh you know proves false um uh you know starting in um you know starting by the mid-60s kind of both navajo leaders and local navajo people are very much seeing the kind of negative effects of uh energy development on their uh on their lands um and um you know begin to you know, with with seeing and seeing few of the benefits, seeing you know, seeing a limited amount of industrial development, a few uh, a few good jobs. Increase, you know, by the eighties and nineties, kind of more of the workforces of these mines and power plants become Navajo, um, but in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, they're uh, they're not, but certainly not the kind of you know not the kind of economic. Um you know, development that tribal leaders had hoped for, and at the same time they're seeing really dire ecological uh uh effects, both health effects on on people uh and kind of the destruction uh the damage of of local spaces um that are you know um, uh that are deeply important to people.
0: Great, and this is um, this will all be aggravated by s- sort of the uh, the developments that happen on Navajo land after uh, the the hydroelectric dams in the Grand Canyon are um, scuttled, uh, and so in in the chapter chapter six called the Living River, you kind of lay out this uh, contentious fight over whether these dams were going to be built, and it became really a, a national, if not an international, issue. Uh, and you have like the Sierra Club and other environmentalist groups, um, sort of like introducing a novel language of uh, you know rights to undeveloped nature. But uh, really tellingly, um, those rights to a pristine nature, uh, you know namely tourist locations like the Grand Canyon, had the uh, the effect of revving up economic, or energy energy development and ecological damage in the Navajo lands. Um, Can you say something about this moment and perhaps why energy development was so much more palatable in a place like the Navajo Reservation rather than the Grand Canyon?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things you see in this battle over kind of a proposal to build dams at either end of the Grand Canyon um, is you see environmental groups coming up you know I think, for the first time with a really profound critique of suburban growth um, uh, in one of the the Sierra club pu- publishes two really widely distributed and well known picture books at uh, at the time of canyon landscapes um, that are meant to you know provide people with a sense of here's what here's the loss um here's what's lost with the development of hydroelectric dams of flooding of these Canyon landscapes. Um, And, you know, in one of these books, one of the authors writes something like how much isn't, you know, essentially how, how much is enough? Will Phoenix be a better place if it has 3 million people instead of 2 million people? Will Los Angeles be a better place if, you know, it has 15 million people instead of 10 million, like to what, you know, you know, what is the, what is the end of this, of this kind of growth if it ends up being so kind of profoundly destructive to um, places that are um, kind of majestic and special? Um, however, the Sierra Club, um, because of a set of, of commitments to protecting national parks, really kind of draws the border of that critique. I mean, that's, that's a very wide ranging critique. The way they apply it politically, though, um, uh, is restricted to kind of the borders of Grand, Can- Grand Canyon National Park um, and to the idea that the ecological life of the park, uh, with the Colorado River flowing through it at its heart, um, uh, is one of the things that, you know, that makes that place special. Um they, you know, broadly kind of, they, they not only kind of ignore um, nearby spaces uh, on the Navajo Nation, but they, they actively, uh, in the book at least, promote both coal development and atomic development as, you know, as answers to this, uh, as solutions to the problem of, well, if we don't build these dams, where will the energy Come from David Brower, who is, you know, in many ways the kind of one of the key um, one of the key founders of the contemporary environmental movement. Said why are we says essentially why are we building dams when there's all of this nearby coal available and atomic energy is becoming so um, you know is becoming so widely used. So while they launch this critique of this critique of growth, they both spatially contain it into Um, into discrete landscapes that are, you know, important to kind of important in a national imagination and to a kind of particularly to a particular set of kind of metropolitan elites. Um, And at the same time, they provide uh, or hold out kind of coal and atomic energy as alternatives. So while the, the critique of growth is launched there's not a kind of corresponding critique of of limiting kind of energy development as a way to um you know as a way to to limit growth in you know in some ways. Uh, later on, you know to their to their credit they do come uh to see the uh coal mines that are developed as uh as environmental catastrophes, um, um, and mobilize politically against them. But by the time they mobilize, those projects, uh, are already underway with kind of capital invested in the construction of coal fired power plants to use them. And I think one of the, you know, one of the, one of the lessons that I drew, uh, in kind of research and writing the book is that, 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 When capital gets uh, located in place in the form of infrastructure, then the possibilities for political, then political change becomes much more, much more challenging.
0: Yeah, that, that, it's it's kind of funny, because that was uh, literally what I was about to ask you about. Um, uh, you actually write that, uh, you know, once the material aspects of the geography of power came into existence, resistance to development became much more difficult. So um, basically, what I uh, take from that is that you're saying that, uh, you know like the massive inequalities shaped the development of infrastructure and then the very like fixedness of infrastructure make those inequalities more permanent or as your uh, you know former University of Michigan colleague uh, Nathan Connolly would say more concrete can you, can you actually elaborate on this in reference to some of the um, like political debates uh, going on in the Navajo Nation in the 1970s? Um, you know, there were uh, mines or plants that were occupied by uh, militant indigenous um, actors. And, uh, and, and yet the, the, the infrastructure, the terms of the infrastructure um, were hard, if not impossible to challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they became, hard, you know, impossible, they became hard you know, nothing's impossible, Mm -hmm. but they became very, very challenging, um, uh, to, uh, impede both because of, you know, the fixity of infrastructure in place, um, that, you know, that now kind of, you know, capital had taken physical form, right. In the form of power plants, drag shovels, coal mines, um, um, and that um, increasingly, the Navajo Nation became, you know, dependent on the revenues, uh, you know, generated from these plants. Both in terms of, you know, royalties on coal, which were, you know, you know, wildly unequal. The Navajo Nation received twenty-five cents per ton of coal that was that was sold. You know, uh, it was resold to a power plant for three dollars a ton. Uh, almost you know immediately upon its mining um, um, uh so they're dramatically unequal revenues and yet they become you know one of the largest um uh, you know parts of the tribal treasury um and i mean this is you know this is how dependency works right um uh an unequal system um nevertheless becomes uh you know becomes People become deeply reliant on a deeply unequal system um, uh, that that both you know that both exploits them and becomes very difficult to escape. Um, so that I mean the 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 conflicts that in, in the 1970s, as kind of further development, um, as further development uh, is proposed, the, some some I think really telling conflicts. Erupt uh, on the on the Navajo Nation between tribal leaders who essentially say we need more energy development in order order to be able to function like a state to have power Um, um, and you know essentially say to people in local communities look you know the people at Black Mesa have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. The people in uh, you know the people by Four Corners power plant have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. Now you people living in Burnham, which is a small community in western New Mexico, it's your turn to do your part um, uh, And the people in Burnham say, we know <laughs> we know people <laughs> who live near Four corners. We know people who live at you know Black Mesa. We know the sac- we know what those sacrifices have meant. Um, And, you know, it's meant the destruction of places that are, you know, are deeply, you know, deeply important to them with very little benefit coming back, very little benefit that we can see that's come back to them. So these, you know, you know, conflicts erupt that have continued into the present day um, between, um, the tribal government um, and uh, and local activists who say that you know, the tribal government, you know, puts, you know, the, you know, puts itself uh, in front of the interests of, of Navajo people. Um, and so, you know, those kind you know, those kinds of politics become, uh, you know, which uh, become a, have become a continuing part of both kind of you know Navajo politics and Indian politics across uh, uh, the American West. I think it's no accident that the largest um, uh, the largest non uh, Lakota uh, presence at uh, at the NoDapple protests uh, were uh, were people from the Navajo Nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was uh, really taken aback by uh some of your uh your points about just how contentious or how like how much the Navajo Nation uh was debating you know like like resource management um you know sovereignty all these things and how like we shouldn't be surprised by by that cuz like, they're the ones who uh, are not only producing um the the energy that you know like everyone else is uh, consuming but they're also like bearing the brunt of the pollution And so they're like they're very positionality in the energy system, um, like makes these, uh, you know, these debates a lot more real. So, I was wondering if you could just just to sort of like sum up our conversation about this book. um, I was wondering if you could say something about what your history of you know mid twentieth century electricity systems in the Southwest uh, can tell us about our, you know, contemporary ecological problems, uh, um, you know, ranging from climate change to the emptying of the oceans or things like that. Like what, what does your book tell us about our contemporary moment?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's a really, that's a, that's one of the questions that I've kind of, I've really puzzled with, like with, you know, the, the way that kind of in electricity as this kind of com- almost you know this component of our daily lives um that exists you know around around us almost all the time now i mean you know i you know i wake up from because of electricity most of, most days um you know i use it constantly throughout the day without thinking um um i mean without thinking necessarily where it's coming from i mean i've done enough work to, to know generally what the kind of conditions of my electricity are um but that like un the, the the fact that here's this presence that has over the past you know 60 years um been one of the primary drivers of carbon intensification um and it, that it's it's most visible um, distant from the people who use it most. Um, I think that's one of the profound developments, infrastructural developments of the past 60 years. And it's one of the most troubling um, because it, the promotion of a kind of unknowing consumption that both has deepened kind of Urban-rural inequalities, um, and has, you know, endangered the planet, um, and you know, and continues to, you know, it continues to endanger the planet, and has, you know, has, you know, created patterns of, kind of, of underdevelopment and dependency that means that people in coal-producing regions have you know, seemingly, uh, you know, seemingly few other options, economic options, um, you know, this nexus of, you know, this nexus of kind of metropolitan expectation um, uh, and metropolitan ignorance, I think is one of the, the kind of major engines of, you know, of, uh, of, of, the kind of patterns of thought that go to kind of exacerbate um that go to exacerbate climate change i think you know one of the things that's most hopeful um is the way that kind of indigenous activists you know in the past decade have really kind of arisen to make the to make the costs of you know energy both on a local level and on a global level you know increasingly you know increasingly visible and the ability to demand for them to demand uh notice through you know through protest actions through political organizing um and you know through the way that they are at least in part able to kind of you know insist that those stories become present on a national uh on a national level
0: great well i think that's uh, a, a good place to leave the book um on this show we always ask our guests what they're working on right now
1: yeah i'm working on a i'm working right now i'm working on a history of of uh native new york in the first half of the uh in the first half of the 20th century uh that's uh uh part of a broader project that i'm i'm kind of Working on uh, about um, kind of thinking about the indigenous place in uh, in America in North American urban life, uh, you know, across the across the broad sweep. So I'm co-editing, uh, of some, I'm I'm organizing a symposium and co-editing a volume uh, that will begin next year. That um, uh, that's tentatively called uh, Indian Cities Histories of Indigenous Urbanism. Um, that look at the kind of the central role that native peoples have played um both in uh in both in as urban actors and as uh as subjects of urbanization um and so the the new york uh the new york part of the story looks both at um the place of native people in um in kind of the cultural life of New York and in the material life in the in the building of uh the built environment of the uh of the city the kind of modern you know what we think of as the modern skyline of New York is built in large part uh by um by steel workers uh from Ak- sasne steel workers uh who uh whose homelands are, are along the US Canadian border um, so I'm I'm, it, it's a kind of native history of New York City uh, at the moment of its kind of emergence as the capital of the modern world.
0: Hmm. Well, I really look forward to that. Uh, thanks again for speaking to me and uh, thank you uh, to all of our listeners.
1: Thank you for the, thank you for talking to me.